You're tuned in with the Underground Christian Network. In the seventh chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew, Jesus Christ said, Beware of the false prophets, who will come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are savage wolves. By their fruits you will know them. Christ mentioned in that particular context that a good tree did not bring forth corrupt fruit. And a corrupt tree could not bring forth good fruit. People are often puzzled when they therefore look at the kingdom of the cults and the occult, and particularly at a world cultic explosion, and they see people living by apparently the Christian ethic. They see apparently fruit in people's lives which emulates Christianity. And they go to Matthew chapter 7 and they quote Jesus Christ. And they say, well, look, obviously the Lord Jesus has put the test before us. And if we're going to take him seriously, these people must have something of reality. Every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. But it is also an obvious truth to any student of the Scripture and to anyone familiar with the Old and New Testament in comparison with world religion that there are two kinds of fruit. There is the fruit of life and there is the fruit of doctrine. It is possible to have a life that is apparently flawless and doctrine that is totally corrupt and opposed to everything that God reveals as truth. And it's perfectly possible to dot every I and cross every T in doctrinal theology and have a life that is totally corrupt and devoid of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And whoever does not have Christ's Spirit, says Paul in Romans, is not Christ's property. So you must look out for both. You must look out for the corrupt fruit of doctrine and the corrupt fruit of life. And in the case of the kingdom of the cults and of the occult, this is precisely what you quite frequently find. Now, when you approach Baha'ism, which is one of the larger cults of the world, which claims a membership in excess of two million, and which has spread throughout the world to alarming proportions, you have to acknowledge the fact that it is a tremendous indication of syncretism. The world is looking for a bringing together, if you want to use that phrase, of all religions. And Baha'ism offers this. It is the unification of religion which appeals to people today. I refer to it sometimes as the homogenization of religion. Trying to bring everything together and agree on some common denominator some irreducible minimum. And this is the key to the success of Baha'ism. The world is ready for religion that cuts across all barriers and which melds everything together. The big question is, will Christianity and Jesus Christ's gospel fit into this melting pot? And if it won't, how effectively does the gospel come to terms with it? For after all, it is the task of the church not only to proclaim Jesus Christ, 
but to be able to give to everyone that asks of us an answer, a reason for the hope that lies within you. The church has neglected giving answers. That's why we're in the mess we're in right now. We have lost our theological seminaries. We have, by and large, lost our colleges. And we have certainly lost a large segment of our churches and denominational structure simply because we have failed to comprehend the meaning of terminology and have failed to understand that people can use the same language and mean different things by it. Now, we are today in a world that is aiming at syncretism. And everywhere, people are trying to get together. You can see it all over. Even the United Nations are trying to get together, which all by itself would be semi-miraculous. <laughs> the churches are trying to get together. People everywhere are trying to get together. It should come as no shock to us that the world religions are trying to get together. When we see the National Council of Churches and the Roman Catholic Church approaching a detente, we then recognize the fact that things have become terribly desperate in the United States on both sides of the Protestant and Catholic dialogue, how much more so in the area of comparative religion. Now, to move on from this, why does Baha'ism offer so much to so many? Because it offers you a chance to believe in Jesus and in the Christian gospel, albeit with redefined terms, and at the same time, get along happily with everybody else. It is the intellectual approach of having your cake and eating it at the same time. A beautiful idea, and people are moving towards it in droves. What really is Baha'ism? Can we understand it? Can we come to grips with it? Can we answer it? And can we love the people who are in it enough to spend the time to bring them to Christ? Evangelism has as its natural adjunct apologetics, which is not beating people on the head with the answers, but giving a reasoned answer for your faith, as Christ and the apostles and the prophets did. Not relying on the answer to save people, but realizing that it's a responsibility to do that and that it's the task of the Holy Spirit to touch people's hearts and lives and make them responsive to the truth of God. That's our task. And we have to be motivated not by a desire to win our argument with the cultist and the occultist. We've got to be motivated by the desire to win that person to Jesus Christ. And if we don't have that desire, all we're going to do is march into the field of the cults and the occults and deal damnation round the land which is precisely what Alexander Pope warned us against a long time ago. And this is what we want to avoid. To be compassionate and loving, and yet to be inflexible in the truth as it is in Jesus. That is the ultimate goal of evangelism and apologetics. Now, what is Baha'ism? And the Mare Baba type, and the I Ching and the various types of oriental and world religious philosophies which have amalgamated in our day to so challenge Christianity. What is the basis of all of them? An impersonal God and a confusion of terminology. Nowhere is this better personified than in Baha'ism. Unlike other cults, 
Baha'ism came into existence in a breath of fire and persecution unparalleled in history. The new revelation came through Mirza Ali Muhammad, an individual who announced himself to be the Bab or the gate of revelation. He corresponds to John the Baptist in Christian theology. He believed himself to be the forerunner of a great messianic office. He was martyred, and there was terrible persecution at the hands of Islam. Modern Baha'ism still considers the Bab, as he is called, the gate, to be the great forerunner and revelator, who led the way to a man who is known to them as Bahu Allah, the glory of God. He succeeded to the messianic throne, proclaimed himself to be God in human form, to be a manifestation of deity, and went on to establish the religion of Baha'ism. It is active today in more than 70 countries, has more than 519 centers, and I would point out also that it is extremely evangelistic. Now, don't mistake me when I say evangelistic. I don't mean it in the context of evangelical Christianity. I mean evangelistic in the sense of communication. Whereas some cultic structures will not go out of their way to reach people, the Baha'is will. Christian science will circulate science in a very innocuous way and make it difficult to get to. Baha'ism will go out of its way to get to people and has been quite successful. Now, after Bahu'u'llah died, he was succeeded by his son, Abdu'l-Bahá, who brought it to the United States. He was succeeded by Shoghi Effendi, whose tomb is at the international headquarters, which is in Haifa, Israel. Recently, I was in Israel, visited Haifa, delivered a lecture there, although not under the auspices of the Baha'is. I think I'm persona non grata there, but uh, I had an opportunity to deliver a lecture, at any rate, to some busloads of pilgrims on the subject of what Baha'ism was. Its history is an offshoot of Islam. Its basic theology, very, very simple. What is it? That Moses, Christ, Buddha, Zoroaster, Confucius, Mohammed, and finally Bahu'u'llah are all manifestations of the Supreme Divinity. And that Jesus was the light for his time, Mohammed for his time, but Bahu Allah, the glory of Allah, the glory of God, is now dispensing truth to the entire world. The nine great world religious leaders, the nine-sided temple in Wilmette, Illinois, the Baha'i's fixation with the figure nine and with 19 is quite significant in their history. I think perhaps documentation is necessary to show what a great debt Baha'i owes to Islam. And if you can understand this, I think it's possible to come to grips with Baha'i theology. Because the theology, though it is simple and basic structure, becomes complex when it gets into its philosophic application. And I want to quote directly from the sources themselves because I think that's only fair 
to represent the Baha'is as they themselves teach it, not as others would represent them. One of the claims that's constantly made against Christianity is that we misrepresent other people's religion. I think the best thing for us to do is let them represent themselves. And therefore, I'm going to quote them. What do they believe? The oneness of God and the oneness of religion. The oneness of mankind. An independent search after truth. All prejudices must be abandoned. Religious color, national class, sexual, and personal prejudices. International peace must be established. International auxiliary language, Esperanto, must be established. Education for all. Equality for the sexes. Abolition of industrial slavery. Abolition of wealth and poverty. I don't quite know how we're going to manage that one. I've been trying to think it through for 20 years, how we can abolish wealth and poverty simultaneously. <laughs> does present somewhat of a dichotomy in logic and philosophy, but it's there. And final, personal holiness. Work in the spirit of service for the Baha'i is worship. Now, these are noble goals. The oneness of God and the oneness of religion, the oneness of mankind. To search after truth, the abandonment of prejudice, the quest for peace, a language that everybody can understand, education for everybody, equality, all of the things that men would normally seek after. But going beyond these things, how does Baha'ism and its structural theology compare with Christianity? To me, this is very important. May I, at this juncture, invoke Bertrand Russell? Now, I recognize that this won't really register on some people initially, but I'm going to invoke him anyhow because my training is in philosophy. I uh, studied for my master's degree under Sidney Hook at New York University. He was one of the foremost emergent naturalists in the world. And I spent three and a half years of my life learning why I should not believe in God, which thoroughly confirmed me in my faith in Jesus Christ. <laughs> One of the surest ways to become a devout Christian is to get battered from pillar to post and to learn ultimately the truth that not only is the intellect to be satisfied, but what must be first satisfied is the quest of the soul. And God will take care of the mind. First the soul must be at peace with God and then the mind. And too often we try and get the mind and the logical system in order first and we ignore the soul, and then suddenly everything starts to come apart. Well, under Dr. Hook, I had my baptism of fire. Now, we'll never forget one day, Dr. Hook, who was Jewish, being faced with this question by someone in the class who was a theological eclectic, which is essentially what Baha'ism is. And Dr. Hook went to the blackboard, and he said, I have to agree here, though I seldom do, with Dr. Bertrand Russell. And everybody laughed because he was an emergent naturalist and of course uh, Russell uh, held an entirely different school of philosophy. He was uh, essentially a, an empiricist and uh, their views conflicted in a number of places. And so he drew a circle on a board and made it into a pie and then he wrote in each one of the pies the name of the religions of the world. Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, Zoroastrianism, 
Confucianism, and he went around the circle, ended with Judaism and Christianity. Dr. Hook, who is an agnostic by his profession and an atheist by his methodology, which you will find most con professing agnostics are atheists. They are agnostic who agnostics who say we do not know, but they act as if they had received a divine revelation. <laughs> that there is no God. After he had done this on the board, he said, now, I would like to invoke the law of non-contradiction. A cannot at the same time be non-A. Granted, gentlemen, everybody said, yes, yeah, of course, first-year student in logic will know that. It's got to be true. Obviously, everybody falls down and worships before the four formal laws of logic. <laughs> the law of the Medes and the Persians, which alters not. And so Dr. Hook said, now, either all the religions of the world are wrong, or one of them is right. <laughs> Bertrand Russell, why I'm not a Christian, and he quoted the page. Everybody laughed again. He said, now, without getting too sticky in this matter... He said, and you know my position, everybody did. He taught a course in metaphysics, which was laughingly known in grad school as the course in which Dr. Hook buries God. It's called metaphysics. Uh, uh, the name itself was humorous, since he was teaching the course. Well, he then proceeded to go through each one of the religions. I didn't know how well informed he was on these religions until he got finished. And he proceeded to show internal contradiction in theological structure on the definition of the nature of God. He never bothered with anything else, just the nature of God. And he showed how Islam, Judaism, and Christianity all derived from the same source, basically monotheistic, were opposed logically and theologically to all other forms of religion and showed the internal contradiction structurally as he went to all of them. Then when he got finished, he eliminated Islam because he said it was the later of the three and was derived from Judaism and Christianity, an amalgamation of both and not worthy in his mind to be considered. And then he said there are only two left, Judaism and Christianity. By Judaism, he said, I mean orthodoxy. Because if you're going to be a Jew, orthodoxy is Judaism. Coming from Dr. Hook, who had no Judaism at all, that came as quite a revelation. And he ended by saying, since Judaism and Christianity are essentially agreed on everything, but dietary laws and the identity of Jesus of Nazareth he said, we are left with the conclusion that the Christians are always telling us about, namely, that Christianity is the logical fulfillment of Judaism, and that there must be, even if that's not true, only one God. And there was dead silence in the classroom, and he said, I'm open for discussion on the subject. And there was no discussion on the subject. <laughs> Dr. Hook had, with Bertrand Russell, buried everything. 
by a systematic dissection of the nature of God. It would be possible to do that right now. I don't have the blackboard, the pie, and the quotations, but I have done it in my own lectures and teaching over a 15-year period using exactly the same methodology, and it works. It works because A cannot be non-A. It cannot be a wet, dry, light, dark day outside at the same time unless you're psychotic. <laughs> Or unless you're solipsistic. You know what a solipsist is. That's the person who remains convinced that the only reality is what he experiences until somebody hits him with a truck. <laughs> then he sues the trucking company, therefore proving that he is no longer a solipsist. Now, when we face Baha'ism, this is one of the most telling arguments in the world, and it's non-theological. So you ought to write it down, or at least think about it. Namely, you have internal contradiction between all the great religions of the world on the basic premise of every one of them. What is it? The nature of God. Buddhism doesn't know what the nature of God is because Buddhism is agnostic. I defy you to come up with a statement on the nature of God from Buddhist writings that is not agnostic or at best pantheistic. That's one. Hinduism has 388 million variations of one pantheistic manifestation, Brahma, Vishnu, and Siva. Now, put them all together, and I will defy you to come out with some form of analysis of this that will meet with Christianity's emphasis upon there being only one true and living God. For when you go back into the roots of Hinduism and back as far as you can get into the writings, the sacred writings of Hinduism, it becomes monotheistic, not polytheistic. Because the corruption from monotheism to polytheism progressively. As you go into the other religions of the world, Zoroaster was confused by the problem of evil. He had an internal contradiction so strong it almost destroyed him, personally. Ahura Mazda was the supreme god, and Angra Menu was his personal devil. He could not solve the problem of world conflict. He could not solve the problem of evil. So he created a dualism in which good and evil were forever at each other's throats. How will you resolve this with Judaism and Christianity when you have God, the source of all creation, permitting evil as a result of freedom, something Zoroaster could never deal with? Because he had no revelation, he only had reason to go by. Any perusal of Zervan, the Zoroastrian dilemma, 600 pages of Zoroastrian philosophy, which I urge you to avoid at all costs, <laughs> will outline that Ahura Mazda and Angra Menu are not Yahweh Elohim or Jesus Christ. Now, I think it can be established that this criticism is valid. Therefore, when you deal with Baha'ism and its basic structure, you have to recognize its syncretism and its basic weakness. You can't keep talking, as they do, about all religions being one and having one source as God if you're riddled with internal contradiction on the definition of the nature of that God. Because the God of the Bible says in Malachi chapter 3, I, the Lord thy God, what? Change not. The basic structure of divine revelation in Christianity is the immutability of the nature of God. 
Once you have introduced change into the character of deity, you have annihilated Judaism and Christianity. You have introduced finitude to the nature of God. And finitude is alien to the nature of God because by definition he's infinite. And these are things that we must introduce into the mind of the Baha'i and show him, look, it isn't just this simple. You don't homogenize everything into one happy group. You simply have to face the fact that there is this structure, this tension, this contradiction. And it's there. Now, so far as the basic teaching of Christianity is concerned, there has to be a recognition that Jesus Christ is not just a manifestation for a time period. Jesus Christ, according to the Scripture, was not one of many equally good ways and aspects of the truth and a fragment of the life. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He declared himself to be the eternal God in human form. Baha'ism does not claim successive incarnations but successive manifestations. Jesus Christ claimed to be incarnate deity. The fulfillment of Proverbs 30, verse 4, which speaks of God having a son. Now, no son who is a true son can escape sharing the nature of his father. If God has a son, that son shares his nature. And if he shares his nature, whether the mind can comprehend it or not, or is staggered by its immensity, that nature is deity. And this is what staggered Mohammed and what staggered Baha'u'llah. It could not confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You see, Baha'ism relegates him to a pantheon of nine manifestations. But the New Testament and Christian revelation will not settle for Jesus on an ecumenical panel of the ages. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is God manifest in human form. The wonderful thing about Christian revelation is the fact that you can pray over people in the name of Zoroaster and Krishna and Buddha and Mohammed and the gods and goddesses and philosophers of earth from now until the proverbial purgatory freezes over and nothing happens. But you pray over them in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and if God has a mind to do it, he not only heals bodies and souls, but he does remarkable things with lives. The unanswerable argument is transformation. There is such a thing as self-reformation, and sometimes it takes. But self-reformation and transformation are two entirely different things. And what God does is from the inside out. What man does is always from the outside in. At the core, there's been no change affected. Christ, according to the New Testament, is God in human form. Bahu'Allah is manifestation of God, but not divinity in the sense of incarnate deity. That's a very important Point. Now, when it comes to the subject of sin, here is one of the great weaknesses of Baha'ism. You might make a note of this because it will help you deal with them and witness to them, I think, effectively. The Baha'is have a peculiar concept of sin. Let me quote from the wisdom of Abdu'l-Baha 
This is considered authoritative material. Quote, The only difference between members of the human family is that of degree. Some are like the sick and must be treated with tenderness and care. None are bad or evil. Close quote. This, as far as Christianity is concerned, could not possibly be acceptable in a syncretism of religion. Jeremiah 17.9 reminds us the heart of man is deceitful above everything. And the Hebrew says, incurably sick. We read it desperately wicked in the KJV. But the Hebrew says, incurably sick, meaning that the cure must be effected by a divine agency and not by anything grounded in human experience. What we are dealing with, therefore, is God touching people. The problem of sin is not dealt with adequately in Baha'ism. It hasn't been in the past. It's not going to be at the present moment. Perhaps we might quote fully Abdu'l-Bahá on this point. Sin is the state of man in the world of the baser nature. For in nature exist defects such as injustice, tyranny, hatred, hostility, and strife. These are characteristics of the lower plane of nature. These are the sins of the world, the fruits of the tree from which Adam did eat. Now, what is the remedy that Baha'ism offers for this lamentable condition? I quote, Through education we must free ourselves from these imperfections. Close quote. Through education. Some of the most depraved people in the world have PhDs. <laughs> have very high levels of education without degrees. If you educate a thief, you only succeed in increasing his capacity to steal. <laughs> you educate a depraved soul, you are only increasing his or her capacity of depravity. And therefore, you are not really dealing with the problem of sin at all. It's like the Buddhist who says, the way to escape sexual lust in terms of being confronted with a beautiful naked woman is to imagine her at the age of 93. <laughs> and then you will be desireless. You will also be crazy. <laughs> Existentially, you're sick. What is the product of the saffron robe, the shaved head? and the noble eightfold path of desirelessness anyhow. Its tale is written all over Asia, and we are so zealous to import it to the United States. I have traveled all through Asia on numerous occasions and have seen it, lectured there, taught there, known many individuals throughout Asia, in many countries. I have seen Buddhism, and I think I can speak on it authoritatively at this particular point. What has it produced? Has it produced the care and concern and compassion for people that the high ethical and moral tenets are supposed to produce? No. It doesn't produce the orphanages, the old age homes, the hospitals, the social works, the care, the concern, or anything, because there is no motivating spirit of the Good Samaritan, because there is no risen Savior. Jesus Christ's gospel is not based on an empty tomb. If that dashes any of your fondest thoughts to the dust, I'm sorry. But it's not. And Christians had better get it out of their heads once and for all. 
Jesus Christ's gospel is based upon a risen Savior. An existential encounter with some living being who said, Because I live, you will live also. And the cowards who fled from him in the garden of Gethsemane when the sheep were smitten became the conquerors of Pentecost and the apostolic age, not because they were disciples of some loud-mouthed Nazarene carpenter who was crucified outside the walls of Jerusalem on some kind of protest march for the zealots and whose body was ignominiously stuffed in some Palestinian graveyard. They were smart Jewish boys who were not going to buy that any more than you or I are going to buy it. Jesus of Nazareth died on a cross outside those walls and they did not believe that he was alive any more than you would have believed it or I would have believed it. And they could look at all the empty tombs from now until hell froze and they wouldn't believe it. Because Peter looked in the tomb and the scripture says he went away wondering. <laughs> Big deal. I never forget reading not too long ago a sermon preached on Easter Sunday by a leading theologian from California, I might add. <laughs> I'm quoting it now. It impressed me very deeply. Quote, We will never know what happened on that memorable Sunday morning, that Easter of so long ago. But something happened. You bet your bippy something happened. Something happened that changed those men. Now, I demand, existentially and logically and philosophically, that there be an account given for it. <laughs> and I don't want any begging you the question or tautological arguments. I want an account given for it. I want to know what changed them. I'll tell you what changed them. There's only one sufficient and efficient cause for the sustained effect. They met him, and the minute they saw him, they said, My Lord and my God. And they came to the conclusion that any sane man will come to. The conclusion was, if he's alive, he is not only Son of God, he's God the Son. And if he's alive, we really will live beyond all time and space. And death has really lost its sting. And the grave really has lost its victory. And they went out to face the tyrant's brandished steel and the lion's gory mane and the fires of a thousand deaths because he was alive, not because of some scraped empty tomb. If they could have bribed the soldiers to run away, and lie about it. And the disciples could have bribed them to steal the body. Away with the empty tombs and back to the risen Christ. Nobody ever cared about empty tombs in the first century or any other time. The only thing they ever cared about was the living Savior. The one who transformed dying men. Now once we face that, then we can face the real core of Baha'ism.
What is it? It's in their doctrine of resurrection. This is their explanation of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and they want us to believe that we can continue being Christians and be members of the Baha'i cult as well. Quote, The cause of Christ was like a lifeless body, and when after three days the disciples became assured and steadfast and began to serve the cause of Christ and resolved to spread the divine teachings, putting his counsels into practice and arising to serve him, the reality of Christ became resplendent and his bounty appeared. His religion found life. His teachings and admonitions became evident and visible. In other words, the cause of Christ was like a lifeless body until the life and the bounty of the Holy Spirit surrounded it. Close quote. That's your resurrection. Well, that's not Christianity. Now, God doesn't change or lie. The Scripture says God who cannot lie. God is not a man that he should lie. We're reminded of that repeatedly. He's not going to tell Zoroaster one thing, Krishna another, Confucius another, Moses another, our Lord another, and these things, point by point, be found to have internally irreconcilable contradictions. He's going to be consistent if there's only one God. The Baha'is say there is. But if there's only one God, then let's invoke the Russell argument and the hook application of it and some good sound logic and get back to Christian theology as it really is and not to the theories and the thoughts of those that would turn us away from the truth as it is in Jesus. The problem of sin is never going to be dealt with simply by trying to say that man can be cured by education. The problem of sin is only going to be dealt with the way God said it would be dealt with. Hebrews 9.22. And that is the fact. That without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Now, we've taken a detailed amount of time to go into some of these theological positions. There are a number of things that could be quoted. One from a noted Roman Catholic authority. I think his summation of Baha'ism is one of the best I've ever heard. He makes this observation, William Whalen, quote, The fundamental principle enunciated by Baha'u'llah, the followers of his faith firmly believe, is that religious truth is not absolute but relative. That divine revelation is a continuous and progressive process that all the great religions of the world are divine in origin and their basic principles are in complete harmony, that their aims and purposes are one and the same, that their teachings are but facets of one truth, that they differ only in the non-essential aspects of their doctrine, and that their mission represents successive stages in the spiritual evolution of human society. He then adds this important criticism. Essentially, the Baha'is are agnostics who deny that God can be known by man. They deny original sin, the reality of sin and evil, the existence of hell. They teach that the universe is without a beginning or creation. It is rather a perpetual emanation from the great first cause. After death, the spirit progresses to a state of perfection. They do not hesitate to incorporate into their worship the scriptures of other religions, the Old and New Testaments, the Koran, the Vedas. Baha'ism has been called a sin 
syncretic religion par excellence. Close quote. I don't have to agree with everything that Mr. Whalen says to come to the conclusion that we are dealing with a religion which appeals to people simply because it cuts across so many lines. Because it prescribes short prayers because a great many people don't like to pray at all. Short prayers are a great incentive. Because unlike Islam, it forbids polygamy and the Baha'is follow a 19-month calendar. No food or drink is allowed between sunrise and sunset on their 19-day fast, which is patterned after the Muslim Ramadan. And I think it's most significant that, like Islam, they have no professional clergy and that their local congregations get together every 19 days for worship. And that worship consists of prayer and meditation and scripture reading. Only solos and a cappella singing generally take place. I think when you deal with Baha'ism, you ought to have knowledge of what you're dealing with. You are dealing with a religion which claims to be the unifier of all. But the truth, if it really be known, is that this is not a unifier at all. This is a fulfillment of what Jesus Christ said a long time before it happened. There shall arise false Christs and false prophets who shall deceive many. And beware of the false prophets who will come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are savage wolves. You will know them by their fruits. And the Apostle Peter who said, there will be false prophets among you even as there were among the people. We have not been told in vain to beware. Only a fool despises the counsel of God. And I close with this thought. There are people who believe that the only task of the church of Jesus Christ is to love the world and preach the gospel and never get involved any way in opposing evil or criticizing the opponents of Christianity. May I go on record as saying that 41% of the New Testament on the face of it is apologetic and that the apostles and our Lord did not hesitate to answer those who criticized them. In fact, the apostle affirms, the great apostle to the Gentile, I am set for the defense of the gospel. We are told in Jude, verse 3, if you'd like to commit it to memory, I have as my life verse, and it's a beauty. When I wrote to you concerning the common salvation, it was necessary for me to urge you to put up a good fight for the faith, once for all delivered to the saints. It is not an option to defend the gospel. It is a command. And those who retreat from the command to stand for the faith must answer to the Lord of glory for it. It is not enough to say, believe in Jesus Christ. You must be prepared to give reasons and answers for the hope that lies within you. The reason is not so you end up vindicated or not that you're right and they're wrong, 
The reason is because you're concerned for the soul of the person who is in darkness and in desperate need of redemption. And if we don't obey the command of God, we are neglecting that opportunity to communicate. The Scripture tells us, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this age has blinded the minds of them that believe not, lest the glorious light of the gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine to them. If we really believe that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, then for Christ's sake, to a world that's perishing, let us too be incarnate love, but love that speaks the truth. And never let it be forgotten that Jesus Christ was incarnate love, and that he could also say, you generation of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come. It is necessary sometime for love to appear almost ruthless. And when you read his condemnation of the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, you sometimes say to yourself, Christ must have known things that none of us ever knew. He did. He could look into the hearts of men. You and I are not called upon to use those words. But we are called upon to preach the word, to be consistent in season and out of season, to reprove, to rebuke, and to exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine, but they shall gather to themselves teachers who will tickle their ears, and the truth of God will be turned into mythology. Make full proof of your ministry. Do the work of an evangelist. Fight the good fight of faith. I'm the most ecumenical person in this room tonight. You may not believe it, but it's true. I was baptized in Episcopalian, educated a Roman Catholic, converted an agnostic, trained under a Presbyterian, ordained a Baptist, and pastored a Lutheran church. <laughs> and I learned something in an Episcopalian hymn, and I'm going to close with it. That hymn is beautiful because it's a sounding note of resonance and of victory to the church. Would to God the church would listen to it. Let her listen to her youth and to the message of the Holy Spirit. Rise up, O men of God. Have done with lesser things. Give heart and soul and strength and mind to serve the King of Kings. Rise up, O men of God. Have done with lesser things. Rise up, O men of God, the church for you doth wait. Her strength unequal to her task. Rise up and make her great. He that has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let us pray. Our Father, bless thy word. Open the eyes of our understanding that we may see and comprehend thy will. Give us compassion and power from thy Spirit to go into a world in darkness as light. For Jesus Christ's sake, amen. You're tuned in with the Underground Christian Network.